0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing great today, Tim.
1: I am really excited about this interview that we have coming up because we have an old friend who's joining us and we have a new friend now who I never thought that we would get the opportunity to speak with. But before we get into all of that, we can't let an intro go by
0: without finding out the ultimate question, which is how are you? Well, thank you for asking, Lance. I'm doing great. I am excited to bring our audience this episode and really this harrowing tale that is really kind of a complicated emotional case, I guess you could say. So the guests that we have on, Jody Plouchet... And Chris Duet. Chris Duet has hosted the Criminal Perspective podcast, which is on the Crawlspace Media Network. He's hosted that for years now. You should go check that out. Follow the links in the show notes. And Jody Plachet is a survivor. He was kidnapped in March of 1984 by Jeff Duset, And once. Jeff Doucette was apprehended by police. He was flown back to Louisiana, and waiting there at the airport for Jeff was Gary Plouchet, Jody's father, who shot Jeff in the head, shot him and killed him right there at the airport while he was in police custody, and it was all televised. Uh, so it's it's this insane media moment, and then we have an opportunity to speak with Jody, who can reflect on it after all these years. And it's just amazing to hear the journey, the emotional journey that he's gone through since this happened and where he is today. And it's, it's just a wild conversation. Yeah. You mentioned that this was
1: a complicated sort of emotional journey that Jody has gone through, but even as a listener, you have to get your head wrapped around the fact that Jody was 11 years old when he was kidnapped by Jeff and had been in Jeff's trust circle. The Jeff was also friends with the family. He was Jody's karate teacher, so there was a previous history there and Jody being 11 years old is kidnapped doesn't really quite realize that he's been kidnapped because he's taken to places that he's never seen before. And as an 11 year old, he's having fun at these places. He is being raped by this man though. He's being raped. He's being molested by Jeff Doucette and he's trying to work out in his 11 year old brain, how he can have fun, but he still wants this, this guy to stop. And Jody does mention that in the interview that it wasn't like he hated him. He just wanted him to stop. And, You got that. So you got to deal with that. And if you're listening to it, there's a lot of triggers in here. So there's a warning right off the top that there's a lot of triggering circumstances and and triggering statements that Jody makes. He's come to terms with everything. And he came to terms with his father committing this act of uh, murder. Also to wrap your head around this vengeance, you have to wrap your head around the fact that the father took matters into his own hands, did this, and pretty much didn't do any time for it because of the circumstances. So totally fascinating. Totally fascinating moment in crime history and media history. And we are really fortunate to be joined by both him and Chris Duet, see what their friendship is like. And you mentioned Chris does criminal perspective and that's all focused on speaking with serial killers and mass shooters and mass murderers. And he also did the uh, alternative segment to criminal perspective, the survivor perspective, where... People like Jody will talk about how they have been able to work their way through these incredibly traumatic moments in their lives and come out a better person on the other side.
0: Jody wrote a book. It's called Why, Gary, Why? The Jody Plaché Story, and you can get that on Amazon, and it is great. Chris Duet absolutely raves about this book. I'm excited to check it out. So I'm really looking forward to
1: the feedback that we get from this episode because it deals in so many of those what-if scenarios If this was your kid, if you're in this position, if your dad did this. So bring on those comments. Really looking forward to seeing how the uh, audience reacts to it. Also, word of note, Jody had no problem doing this interview in the restaurant called Twin Peaks which is
0: sort of like a hooter. So there might be a little bit of uh, twin peaks noise. <laughs> That's right. And you can uh, catch up with all of Jody's work. There are links in the show notes to his social media pages, but also you can check out his website. It's jodyplashay.net. That's P-L-A-U-C-H-E. Okay, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening. Give us five stars. are being joined now by Jody Plouchet and Chris Duet. How are you two fine gentlemen today?
2: I'm doing good. How about you? I'm wonderful, guys. Hey, Jody. Hello. I'm doing good, too. (laughs) Jody has the biggest beer.
1: (laughs) Okay, so for those who can't see what just happened, uh, Jody just held up a... um, uh, a mug of beer looked like a, a healthy mug of beer, and uh, Chris, you look like you're comfortable in your living room. There, looks like it's um, got a nice setting, and Jody's also sort of floating uh, amongst the planets um, with the virtual background. Um, but yeah, gentlemen, what a what a unique opportunity to speak with you both because Chris was the one that connected us for this, and he also, as you know, Jody is. Big in telling your story, and we heard about this. I don't even I don't even know how long ago, but it's always resonated. And I just wanted to extend a genuine thank you to for coming on and taking time out of your uh, life to join us for a few minutes today.
3: Well, thank you for fitting me in.
1: And where are you exactly? I know you're not. I know you're not floating over planet Earth
2: right now.
3: (laughs) Uh, I think I'm table forty-two at Twin Peaks in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. (laughs) Uh, off Segan Lane
2: that is oddly specific if anybody wants to go hunt this man down
3: <laughs> well I, the, the funny thing is is I so a character in the story that we're going to be talking about here in a minute is Mike Barnett and every Friday Mike Barnett comes here and has lunch and so all the girls know him they know me so it's it's kind of neat like you know here's two people in this story that you know are here hanging out regularly so it's, it's kind of cool very cool
0: yeah Okay, well, Jody and Chris, you two are friends. Chris, you conducted an interview with Jody a while ago on your show, um, Criminal Perspective. You're a fantastic podcast, Criminal Perspective. And uh, so we thought it it would be nice to have you along for this conversation as well. So, Jody, so tell me about the book that you wrote. It's called Why, Gary? Why? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: All right, so the book chronicles my childhood from when I was in fifth grade and I started taking karate uh, from a man named Jeff Doucette. And we eventually started taking karate full-time. We were on the fighting team. But unbeknownst to my parents is Jeff Doucette was a pedophile, and he took a liking to me. So, you know, for a year, almost a year, he had groomed the family and he had groomed me, and he started sexually abuse me in April. Well, he started – touching me probably in march of 83 uh he moved up to perform an oral sex on me in april of 83 and in may of 83 he started having sex with me and the book also chronicles the fact that he kidnapped me in february of 1984 and i was returned march 1st he was returned march 16 1984 and captured by local news camera was my dad shooting him in the head um and eventually he got probation so he got away with it which people on twitter love i go uh, me and chris every now and then well he'll text me you know daddy blows up on twitter the other day uh on facebook they had a i don't even know if it was the video it was just a picture of the story and it had 4.1 million views and 10,000 shares and this is a story that's 38 years old but apparently it's Uh, gaining in popularity because if you go to TikTok and type in my dad's name, it's all over the place.
1: Well, I think that um, speaks to just how that particular violation, again, using the word resonates, how that uh, impacts and resonates with people. I'm sure this isn't the first time that you've heard it, but in a fascinating way, everyone relates to your father. Everyone understands exactly why that happened. Um, And before we get into that, can you take us back to when the abuse started and how you were groomed and how you were and how he tested the boundaries with you?
3: All right. So, my first recollection of him testing the boundaries, if I had to go, like spin it back and kind of like review it, would have been when we were taking karate and he was telling us we need to stretch and we need to do like a split. And so, he put our, our feet on cardboard so that we, their feet would slide and then you'd get to where you're doing a split. But, I mean, there's still a foot between where you and the ground is. And so he would push us down and then he'd be like, yo, you feel the tightness right here. And he'd reach in between our legs, you know, where you're doing a split where it would be tight. And he's like, yeah, you got to be flexible to do all your kicks. And that to me would be the first time he started the grooming. The first time it came into my childhood consciousness, I was driving the car and he put his hands in my lap and started kind of tickling the head of my penis and then he quit that may, it maybe lasted like two seconds. And so that's the first time in my consciousness, I was like, Oh shit. But then I felt like, okay, maybe it was an accident. Cause I'm driving a car. He had to put his hand somewhere, you know? So I, in my little 10 year old brain, I'm trying to justify that.
0: Right. Okay. And, um, so at the time, you know, th- this guy Doucette was, you, you know, you thought it was, he was your friend and he was a friend of the family
3: absolutely he was a friend of the family we didn't think he was a friend of the family he was a friend of the family now he was a terrible friend to the family but at that point at that time you know let's say the summer of 1983 yeah everybody uh you know loved jeff
2: there's there i mean jody's dad gary literally gave jeff one of his shirts <laughs> that's how that's right not off know.
3: his back but he actually gave him a shirt out of the closet let him shower at the house and he took him to my grandparents house my dad's parents house for Sunday dinner that we did every Sunday. And my dad, like, he he had stayed over at Saturday night. Uh, We would always have family over on Saturday night. We'd play like, eventually resulted in like, trivial pursuit, but I think at this time it was like Pictionary or something like that. And we would always get together. My aunt and uncle lived in the neighborhood and we just invited him over for family night. And he, he stayed the night that night. And so my dad was going to drop him off. And when he dropped him off at the karate studio, we leave the karate studio parking lot, and all of a sudden, my dad just crying like a baby. And I'm like, "What's wrong?" And he's like, "He's pitiful. He doesn't have anybody, and he just felt bad." So he turned the car around, went, picked him up, brought him home, let him shower, gave him a shirt out of the a fresh shirt out of the closet that was clean, and took him to my grandparents' house. So I mean, the video that everybody sees, where the man you know getting justice for the man who hurt his son, my dad was also betrayed as well. And I, I think that that factored into it because I mean, he literally trusted this man enough to bring him to his parents' house.
1: And was this an overall plan that Doucette had to infiltrate your family?
3: It's not just a Doucette plan. That's just kind of like a pedophile plan because, you know, normally someone who was a a trusted adult known and cared by for the family is someone who abuses children. So you got to gain that trust Um, because if you just take a kid and just grab him and then start performing oral sex on him, he's going to run and tell mommy. It's the, okay, this is a friend of ours. I don't want daddy to be upset with Jeff. Uh, It's just better. It was easier for me just to keep it quiet.
1: And he was doing this to multiple kids in the karate studio.
3: Yes. He actually, I mean, there's kind of a trail. I suspect that there were a couple other boys that I took karate with because he also stayed the night at their house. And you're not going to take a pedophile sleeping in a room with a 10-year-old boy and he's not going to do what a pedophile is going to do. But I was his favorite at the time. Previously... There was another kid, um, who was his favorite, but he aged out. He had gone through puberty, and so Jeff didn't want nothing to do with him. I was still ten, eleven; I hadn't gone through puberty, so I was still Jeff's type.
0: Wow. Okay. And then what happened when, when he kidnapped you?
3: Uh, he had some financial problems, and he, he was facing a court date. And if he didn't, you know, produce the money, I think it was like fifteen thousand dollars, he was going to be held responsible for writing bad checks embezzlement well I forget whatever the charges were so instead of facing those charges he decided to leave town which no one was going to go looking for some dumb karate teacher who didn't pay his rent for three months and you know rip some dude off for $15,000 they're not going to go chase you around the country for that but he decided because I was his love interest and he was a lonely little child boy man he decided to take me with him and then he went from you know uh, unlawful flight to avoid prosecution to aggravated kidnapping very quickly.
1: Was it immediate that you knew that you were kidnapped or was it gradual?
3: Oh, no. He told me, he said, if I don't get the money in a couple of weeks, then I'm going to go to California. I'm going to take you with me. And that was the closest I ever came to tell him. So I really didn't want to go to California, but I also didn't want to face the wrath of what would happen if I told on Jeff. So I just kept my mouth shut. And the day he came to the house, asked my mom to borrow the car, Um, he said we were going to go look at some carpet at this house that uh, was being built by one of the other karate students parents and when we got in the car and headed the opposite way I realized that okay um, maybe this is it and he said yeah we're going to California Uh, so we took my mother's car to his brother Mike's house picked up some stuff some clothes sleeping bag and then we drove to his mother's house in Port Arthur Texas and we stayed there that Sunday night and that Monday night and we got a bus ticket to leave Tuesday at like 11 o'clock from Orange, Texas, heading to Los Angeles. And my mother and my uncle and sheriff's department or sheriff, you know, uh, deputies, they travel from Baton Rouge to Port Arthur that Tuesday looking for me. And they just miss us by about an hour.
2: Real quick, Jody, when you say face the wrath of telling on Jeff, you mean face the wrath from Jeff, right?
3: Yes, I felt. Uh, Jeff was very manipulative and controlling, and, and pedophiles do this to keep the child from telling. Um, but I was scared that, yeah, I mean, here's this karate teacher. Here's someone who, you know, could physically harm me, and I didn't want to be the one to to tell on Jeff. So, yeah, that's that's who I was scared of, the wrath.
1: Had you ever experienced that particular wrath from him or seen him with another child uh, in, a, in in a state like that?
3: No, I've seen him go in uh, uh, fits of rage and guilt trip me because I rode to the grocery store with my dad on the weekend that he had me. So, uh, yeah, I had seen and I was pretty much understandable what he was capable of doing.
1: That must have been absolutely terrifying.
3: Well, it wasn't like that all the time. I mean, it was moments that it would be like that. Most of the time it was fun. We'd be going to uh, the mall or the arcades and he'd give us money. Uh, I mean, how many kidnapped victims can say they went to Disneyland?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean i mean it, it's uh it it leaves you speechless like i i am speechless because we've i've never heard that and we've talked to numerous people and and they've had so many stories and it's never been the case and it really puts like a uh, incredible like human element to it like it 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 makes it less like a story and more like a tragedy you know what i mean like
3: Well, Chris, you did criminal perspectives. How many kidnappers were like, oh, sure, I'd bring them to Disneyland?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's um, very rare to say the least. Um, But yeah, Jeff was out in public with Jody after kidnapping him. They rode a Greyhound bus to L.A. We're staying in hotels. They were out and about, like Jody said, Disney. You know, they saw an episode of Hill Street Blues being filmed when they got there i mean that jeff was not hiding jody in a dark dungeon you know
1: right and that's where your head goes and that that's where it becomes almost like you can separate it because it seems like fiction when you say we 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 were out and about and we went to disney that's just it gets under your skin a little bit more i think at least it did for me right now but
2: yeah absolutely i agree
1: yeah and and can you give a, a, a timeline on this? You were taken in, in February. I
3: was t- taken February nineteenth. Jeff's mugshot is dated February 29th because nineteen eighty four was a leap year, and I was returned home uh, like six in the morning on March first. I left. I left out of LAX about one fifteen in the morning. And I was, arrived in New Orleans M S Y at like six a.m. six fifteen a.m.
0: Okay, and what happened to get Jeff? I guess arrested or, or caught.
3: All right. I think Jeff allowed himself to be arrested and caught because I think he had $6 in his wallet when he was arrested. But what led the cops to him directly is he allowed me to call my mom, collect. Which, again, Chris, next time you talk to a kidnapper, be like, would you allow the kid to call, collect? Because it's not on the, that's not on the kidnapping checklist. That's on what not to do. But uh, he allowed me to call home. My mother asked the operator for time and charges. And for those who might be a little younger, uh, a collect phone call is when you would call a long distance call and make the other person who's receiving the call pay for it. And so my mother, when the phone call was over with it, the uh, operator, got back on the phone and said that call was 29 minutes and it was going to be $14 or whatever you know cost of the call was. And then that's when Mike Burnett, the guy that eats lunch every Friday at Twin Peaks, he got on the phone and said, "Look, this is a, I'm with the Sheriff's Department in Baton Rouge. This is an FBI investigation. I need to know exactly where that call came from." And they call it call That came from room 38 at the Samoa Motel at 425 Catella Boulevard uh, at the corner of Harbor and Catella, literally a block from Disneyland.
0: And we'll be right back after a
1: quick word from our sponsors.
0: Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. From your parents' perspective, at this time, you you were missing and they didn't know where you were?
3: For a week. I was missing they knew I, they knew jeff had had me because my mother had contacted with jeff's mom when jeff had taken me there that sunday jeff's mom was like yeah uh he's gonna be back tomorrow and then monday i didn't return but jeff's mom had talked to my mother on monday and said they're leaving and jeff's gonna drop him off but my mother didn't wait so i was gone for like 10 days i was 11 years old i mean it was conflicting emotions because one of the coolest things I ever saw was the Hollywood side. I mean, I literally, I got chills seeing, just looking at the Hollywood side. I was like, oh, that's awesome. So, you know, there were, but then there was a conflict of, okay, I'm away from my family. And, you know, I, I didn't treat it like a little vacation, but I, I made the best of what I could do and uh, tried to enjoy it.
1: Yeah, I was actually just going to say that must have been incredibly conflicting uh, to be in this, you know, area where like it's it's not anything like home, and you only see it on TV, and you're so young and impressionable, and you realize like you're not supposed to be there though. So you must have had some guilt, enjoying yourself the best you could. But I guess that was a really successful way to cope with it. It was your coping mechanism to just like get through it. Um, when did you? When were you able to kind of separate yourself or come to terms with the fact that you, it was okay to have fun while you were out there?
3: You know, I I looked at it from the get go that okay, you know, was, I felt like it was out of my control. I didn't feel like I could tell on Jeff, so I just figured I would just you know go along and make the best of it. I mean, and it was, I mean, looking back, I mean, it was cool we're walking down the streets in Los Angeles, and there's you know Mercedes Benz all over the place, there's Rolls Royces all over the place, which you know back then. Uh, Rolls Royce, you know, in Baton Rouge, that was rare. You see Bigfoot before you saw a Rolls Royce driving on Baton Rouge. You know, we saw ten of them in just thirty minutes. And the fact that we got to actually watch them uh, film a segment for Hill Street Blues—that was, that was cool shit. You know, so I mean, I made the best of it. Now that night when he got the money wired to him, and he got an eighty-five dollar room at the downtown Los Angeles Hilton, that wasn't a good point that I looked fondly back on. But you know, the trip to Disney—that I even made a joke about it. Because when I went to Disneyland, we went to like New Orleans World and I ordered a, a bowl of gumbo and it was like, what's this shit? This isn't gumbo. This is like jambalaya-ish type stuff, but with tomatoes and it was just nasty. And I even made a joke about that, you know, that video a few years ago about Disney gumbo that just looked like crap that everyone made fun of. And I mean, you know, I tried to make the best of it.
0: So at that time, you, you were not um, like necessarily angry at Jeff.
3: No, I wanted to stop doing what he yeah. did, um, but no, I didn't hate him. I wasn't angry with him. Now, let me say this. I am now speaking as a 50-year-old looking back on an 11-year-old's perspective. At 50 years old, I think it's awesome, and it couldn't have happened to a better person to be viewed on YouTube and Facebook and Reddit and Twitter over and over again. Uh, it couldn't have happened to a better person.
1: What do you mean by that? The, 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 his fate and the fact that it keeps replaying in history?
3: That what he's known for as being a pedophile that got shot on live TV, which, by the way, it wasn't live. It was recorded. Uh, People may have been watching the news live when they showed it. But the shooting occurred around 930. The news aired at 10. But, uh, you know, it's just the fact that people this is terrible. And I'm not this kind of person. But the fact that people celebrate his death again, it couldn't happen to a better person. Maybe Hitler, you know, maybe Pol Pot. Uh, Chris probably knows, of, has probably spoken to some people who probably <laughs> a deserve <laughs> a better fate. <place>. Yeah. Chris <laughs> probably knows a few people that deserve it. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah. And I think that's important to state that you're speaking from your position now as an adult, going back to the mindset of a an 11 year old boy in that position. So there, it's two different people right there.
3: Oh, and I've seen like, oh, people, oh, he went 15 years without talking to his father. I'm like, and i am comment. I'm like, where'd you get this information? Well, it's common knowledge. I'm like, uh, you do realize who I am. <laughs> I'm like, I promise you, I talked to my father immediately. Like, I mean, I think the first night I was around him after the shooting was at his friend Budgie's house. And I didn't really have much to do with him. When he moved back in the house, I wasn't happy because my parents had been separated for six, eight months. And, you know, daddy's coming home. And but daddy was also not supposed to drink. Um, so it was probably... You know, the shooting happened in March, probably around July, June, July. Uh, That's what I told my dad. I said, look, I understand what you did and I'm not mad at you anymore. And so I think that meant a lot to him. We were walking to the pool in the neighborhood pool. We were walking down one night and I just said, I just want you to know that. I'm not, I'm not angry at you And I I think that meant a lot to him, but it wasn't 15 years. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. Right, right. (laughs) Okay. So your, your book is titled why Gary, why? And so what, what exactly did, did your father do?
3: All right. So on the night of Friday, March 16th, 1984, um, he drove to the Baton Rouge airport with a gun in his, tucked in his boot. He got on a cell phone before you would go through the metal detectors. This was before the gates. This is more like a terminal lobby area. And uh, he was talking to his best friend and he said, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. He had the gun. Um, and actually Mike Barnett came walking out first because the cameraman was out there and people had gathered behind the camera to see, ooh, is this going to be like some big celebrity? And Mike told me not too long ago, he told me, said, yeah, he goes, I, I walked around the corner, I saw these people gathering, and they're like thinking like some big movie store is going to be coming around the corner. And I'm thinking to myself, it's nothing but two drunk cops and a pedophile. And he said right then is when he heard, bow. And he's the one that turned around and yelled, why, Gary, why? So his quote, it actually was why, Gary, Gary, why? But everyone remembers why, Gary, why? So that's why it's the title of my book because of the words that mike Barnett said and that's the one that i see every friday at twin peaks
1: yeah okay i i it's amazing to me how how uh you rec- recount that story so 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 matter-of-factly and, and then button it up with and this is a guy that i see every friday at twin peaks uh, he so where did that relationship start with him and i i guess i'm getting ahead of myself with the questions
3: well, yeah, it's a little ahead of yourself. So my dad turned and shot him. He told us, he told us, for so Mike, I'm going to come back. Remember that question and come back and ask you because it's Mike's relationship with the family. So yeah. daddy tells his friend, he is, oh, they must have taken him out the other way because I see Mike and nobody else. But Mike was checking out the area. And so Mike turns and he waves uh, Bud Connor. That uh, was the other sheriff who was walking next to uh, Jeff. And he waves him forward. And so you can see in the video, you can see Jeff and uh, Bud are talking. Buzz like, look, if you see anyone hit the deck, you know, I'll cover you up. I'll ju- and then right then, Daddy turned around, right when the lights got parallel with him, and he was looking through the side of his glasses. He watched the walk. Well, he lost sight, but when the lights came even, he knew to turn around, so that's why his timing's so perfect. He turns around, puts the gun in his ear, and blows his head off. But, all right, so going back to Mike Burnett's relationship, uh, him and my dad, they weren't really close friends, but they knew each other since middle school, since junior high school. They went to high school together. Mike was a couple of years older. Um, and before my, my dad and my mother ever met, my mom dated Mike for nine months. And so whenever my mom and dad got married, uh, she told him that daddy knew Mike. And so every time daddy was running to Mike at a bar, he would go to the pay phone, call my mom and say, hey, hey, guess who's here? And it may have happened like once every two years, uh, LSU football game. I remember the first time I met Bud Connor was at an LSU football game, and I saw Mike, I went up and said hey to him, and he goes, oh, there's Bud right over there, he said, go tell Bud, thank you for letting my kidnapper be killed, uh, and so, you know, the, the whole thing that the police set Jeff up to, to do that, that's not true, there's that narrative, but the police had nothing to do with, that, I can assure you, so I went up to Bud, and I said, hey, Bud, I said, I'm Jody Poche, I just want to thank you for getting uh, Jeff shot, and he looks at me, he goes, he goes, F that. He said, let me tell you something right now. He goes, one, if I'm going to set up someone to be shot, I'm not going to be standing right next to him when it happens. And number two, it's not going to be in front of a video camera. <laughs> so anyway, like if, if, if bro would have stopped like three feet and let Jeff keep walking and Jeff got shot, then I'd be like, yeah, it was a setup. But what happened was my dad used to work at WBRZ Channel 2. And he, he bowled and he knew everybody from that TV station. I mean, they were his friends. And he was having lunch that Friday at a, a restaurant called The Cotton Club. And he was sitting at the Borough area, and uh, the program director, his name was Bob Shadell. He looked at my dad and said, hey, when are they bringing your boy back, talking about Jeff? And Daddy goes, oh, I think he's back already. Bob Shadell was like, no, he's not. And he goes, let me go find out. So he went, and he called the news station. He said, when's Settle Robin?" They said, he'll be in at 9.08 tonight. So that's when Bob Shadell said, Gary, he'll be in at 9.08 tonight. And so that's who tipped Daddy off when Jeff was coming back.
1: And did you say that uh, your father had a cell phone?
3: Did I hear that correctly? No, he was on a pay phone.
1: Oh, a pay phone. Okay. I thought he said yeah.
3: cell phone, too. <laughs> I may could have. have been a slip of the tongue. Yeah, yeah, it could have been a slip of the
1: tongue. <laughs> I, I went back and double-checked the year, and I'm like, okay, maybe he maybe he was way ahead of the curve.
3: <laughs> this story's amazing. <laughs> I was like, people are like, oh, if your dad would have done that now, he would go to jail. I'm like, no, he wouldn't. He, was, he drove the company car to the airport, and he didn't get fired.
1: <laughs> okay, so um, Mike Barnett is the officer who says the, the the phrase that your book is titled, and then what does he do? What does your dad respond with, and, and how does that play out uh, moving forward?
3: You know, my one regret is I didn't publish Mike Barnett's deposition in my book because it's actually funny. Like they go, uh, Mr. Burnett, when did you realize that Gary Plochet had shot Mr. Doucette? And Mike goes, uh, when I turned around and saw Gary holding the gun. So when he saw my dad, he yelled, why, Gary, why? And what the first thing he did was he went and he blocked my dad from Bud shooting my father. So Mike hmm. runs and covers daddy and daddy put his, you know, the gun up in the air. So Mike grabbed his arm. Bud got up, grabbed his gun, walked over to my dad, put the gun to his head, said, you son of a bitch took the gun out of his hand and went over to Jeff and closed his eyes because he was dead.
1: Your, your father was not uh, fired from his job, but he nope. was arrested that night.
3: He was arrested that night. Mike said, you know, book him second-degree murder. I'm sure Mike could have said first-degree murder, but he went with second-degree. No, it was uh, attempted second-degree murder because Jeff wasn't officially dead. He officially didn't die. They put him on life support. They har- harvested his organs, and he died the next day. So his official death was uh, March 17th but i mean really it was 908 on friday night so my yeah, so my dad shot him on a friday night couldn't post bail until monday so my dad actually did serve jail time he did 2 days in paris prison
0: okay and then he was later charged with manslaughter instead of second degree murder
3: well he was tra- he was charged with second degree murder and then he went to a psychiatric facility for about a month and then upon his release when he moved back home he wasn't indicted for like 9 months because the same grand jury that had uh, indicted Jeff for aggravated kidnapping was still seated. And so they wanted to make sure that they had a new grand jury set. So my dad wasn't even indicted until nine months later, but they worked out a deal and his initial lawyer wouldn't take the deal. So they were, the, the DA's office was working out a deal where my dad would serve no jail time because they felt like they weren't going to get a conviction, at least not in Baton Rouge and not in 84 they weren't. I don't think in 2022 they would get the conviction with the evidence they had against Jeff. Yeah, he, he shot him on Friday, got out on a Monday, did the time in the psychiatric ward. And after that, he never, it was just normal. He went back to work. Uh, You know, he'd had a court hearing here and there, but everything pretty much got back to normal. And finally, after my dad had to fire that first lawyer who wouldn't take the deal, he hired another lawyer. They He pled no contest to manslaughter, which the actual Doucette family was okay with. What they weren't okay with was a seven-year suspended sentence, which the judge, who was a fraternity brother of my dad, uh, made sure he didn't go to jail.
1: And do you ever get people telling you that your father got off easy with this and maybe get irritated with the fact that he did this and, and justice wasn't like officially served in, you know, that capacity?
3: Uh, rarely. It, uh, mostly it'll be like in some YouTube comment or something like that. I had a guy on Twitter the other day kind of, oh, would your dad have shot his own son? Of his, he was molesting uh, a kids. I'm like, probably not. But that's not what happened, so I'm not going to answer a hypothetical, you know, because as far as I know, uh, I'll tell you what, let me say if he would have walked in on my brother uh, raping one of his children, yes, my dad absolutely probably would have defended the child. Right,
0: and I'm sure you get uh, a lot of the, I guess, the other side of that, like, uh, like I I understand why he did that, or I would have done the same thing.
3: Oh, I get your dad's a hero all the time. I mean, even... Uh, go look at my gumbo video where I cooked gumbo on Christmas and it was 85 degrees and miserable. But I mean, people are like, oh, that gumbo looks great. Oh, by the way, your dad's a hero.
0: <laughs> right. And how do you feel about it after uh, all this time?
3: Uh, I guess after all this time, I'm glad daddy's actions 38 years later make people happy in, in a way. It gives them a sense of justice will serve.
1: And why is it important for people to read your book and hear your story?
3: You know what, can I defer to Chris on this one? Uh, I mean, and I'm not saying this because I don't want to brag on my book, and I I will, trust me, after Chris, I will will definitely brag on it, but Chris, uh, honest opinion.
2: Since this happened, Jody grew up, he joined an organization in college, Men Against Violence. He later went on to um, live in Pennsylvania and become a uh, uh, survivor activist. He was the Pennsylvania Commission on Crime and Delinquency Survivor Activist of the Year. In 2004, Jody? Yes. And uh, so Jody, he's, he's really good at explaining in his story when he tells his whole story, you know, in his book, he's very good at explaining along the way behaviors and and you know giving tips on sexual assault and you know if this is to happen to you these are your options these are things to look out for it's it's just as much as an instructional guide as it is Jody's story and believe me there is a lot more to Jody's story it is remarkable but um yeah I mean it's 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 incredible. I, I, I bought the book and I, I read it and I could, I literally could not put it down. I read it in about two hours. And I mean, it's, it's fantastic.
3: Another thing I'd like to add is that um, I know it's a, a story about child rape, kidnapping and murder. But if you go look at one of my Amazon reviews, uh, someone said, uh, this book is hilarious. I know that, you know, you're not expecting for me to say that, but uh, so I was I trying to, and I think I did successfully, uh, put humor in there along so you're not just going to be like oh this poor kid he was raped and dad shot the guy and this is terrible uh I mean I guess daddy gets off so it has a happy ending
2: the the content is very easy to digest and in and, and I think Jody you know formulated it that way Jody and it's funny because Jody is I think a lot of people I think uh that takes them back about the book is how honest jody is like unflinchingly honest and that's just the type of person he is but i mean it comes through in the book and people do pick up on that so i mean jody really he 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 bears his soul in it and then and there's there's a lot to it i mean uh in the early 90s um, jody went on the geraldo show and after his segment on geraldo aired a boy from his city Um, reported uh, that he was being sexually abused because he saw Jody's segment on Geraldo. So, Jody has gone on to directly help people, and that's indisputable. And his book is man, it's, 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 I think everybody should read it.
3: Yeah, I took into consideration that like survivors might be triggered if I went too detailed. Uh, my mother was like you need to put more details i'm like no i don't i said i I put enough details that you know that what i went through wasn't good and i told her i said i also got to take into consideration i don't want this to turn into like penthouse forum with pedophiles and they're jerking off to it so i didn't want to put too much detail in there because i didn't want you know survivors to put the book down but i also wanted to give them hope and let them know that okay with the proper uh counseling therapy support uh depending on which one you choose um you can work through this and you can be okay you can thrive, as they like to say in the uh, sexual assault survivor world. You can go from victim to survivor to thriver.
1: And with this um, unflinching uh, honesty, this uh, this quality that you have that Chris described, and maybe, Chris, you're better to answer this because uh, for Jody, this would totally be a hypothetical. Uh, do you think that, and I guess, Chris, in your experience speaking with people, the types of people that you speak with, Is this type of quality a direct result of the experience that he had?
2: I think he made it about, I think the experience that he had, I think, I think maybe Jody was like, look, if I, if I'm going to tell my story, I'm going to tell my story, you know? And, uh, I I don't, I can't say if this, you know, made him more or less honest of a person. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if Jody knows that, but, um, I think the way that he approached his story in his book, um, I think he, I think it was deliberate is you know, is the best thing that I can say. I think it was very deliberate of him, even if he's not an honest
3: person, I think
2: how he wrote his story was very deliberate in its honesty.
3: <laughs> if you read it, you're probably like, ah, you probably should have lied about that one. Um, no, there, there's one spot that I really made sure I, I put it in there. Um, Because of all the books on sexual abuse that I've ever read, I've never really even seen this. But a lot of times uh, children, when they grow up, will internalize and they have that guilt that, okay, um, you know, why did I allow this to happen? Why did I say anything? That's because uh, the human body is a human body. It's going to respond like a human body. The first time we were in Houston and Jeff was like, oh, I'm going to perform a little sex on you. He didn't say it like that. But um, I didn't know why he wanted to do it. I didn't I, I didn't know that was the thing. And then my body responded and I just freaking, I had an orgasm. And I didn't know what it, I didn't know what an orgasm was. And my toes were curled, my legs were, and I tell that story and I do it for a reason because I want people to know that there's no reason in feeling guilty because your body responded like a human body responds. Now mentally, I wasn't enjoying it. My body was responding and I was freaked out, but you know, it was what it was. And so I wanted to point that out there to so someone who has been sexually abused let's say, you know, from the time they were nine to 14, at some point your body's going to experience pleasure. And it doesn't mean that you're experiencing pleasure, your body's experiencing pleasure. So I wanted to make that point because that's where a lot of that guilt comes from, that survivor guilt comes from.
1: Right. Now it's going to like just tear up the survivors because – I mean, just the fact that someone did this to you who was a friend of your family and someone that you trusted and then your mind's thinking one thing, your body's doing something else. I mean, it's I mean, kids who are 11 and 12 years old have it tough enough anyway, just trying to figure out the world. And then you have like this violation. It's 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 amazing that. It's amazing how you came out of it because you recognized that you needed I don't know if you went through counseling but you recognized you needed the support and you got the support and you had the courage enough to write the book and put those parts in because I think that people have to read that to 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 know it's really uncomfortable to read but
2: it really does show how incomprehensible it is like the victims literally yeah. cannot comprehend it that's how f- like fucked up this you know this abuse and everything is and and Jody Jody gives you that from his person, you know, from his story, from, from his recollection of events and everything. And he, he, you know, it comes across and, and it's, it's, I think it's great that he put, you know, content like that in his book and, and, and there's so much more that's why it's just a, a unbelievable amount of value, um, in that book. I think any parent definitely
3: should read it. Oh, definitely every parent should read it. I had a guy, a local news uh, reporter, he did an interview for the local paper uh, when my book first came out. And he said, what took you so long to write it? You know, because the shooting happened in 84. I published the book in 2019. And I told him, I said, well, like my dad that night at the airport, I knew I only had one shot to get it right. And so I wanted to make sure it was the best book it could be. And I really think, um, you know, it's probably going to happen when I die. But I really think every parent and, you know, every you know, teenage kids should read it. I mean, even the boys should read it because it'll, it'll put into their heads, okay, you know what? Some stupid shit dumb boys do when they're 15, 16 years old. Like there was a case in Pennsylvania where they would get their girlfriend's neck and take pictures and they put it all in a Dropbox where they all had access to it. Um, well, that's illegal. You can't do that. So you, they need to know that, that, you know, there are consequences to these actions, even though they weren't trying to hurt the girls. They weren't trying, they were just being stupid 15 year olds.
1: And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. What is your message uh, to parents? Obviously, read the book, um, digest it. But uh, w- what is your message?
3: Okay, the message is you got to be cognitive of what you say and how you act around your children. Because people ask me all the time, why didn't you tell? One of the reasons, because I knew my dad would kill him. And you hear parents say all the time, if anyone ever touches you, let me know, oh, I'll kill that son of a bitch. Well, guess what? Odds are it's going to be a family friend, trusted adult. It's Uncle Bill, Uncle Paul. They're not, they don't want Uncle Paul shot. They just want Uncle Paul to quit. So you say things like that, you've got to be careful. Other things, I had a woman tell, tell me in Pennsylvania that she told her daughter that if anyone ever touched her, that she needs to tell on that person because even though that doesn't kill the child, it kills their soul. I was like, what kind of trash is this i know it sounds great to go oh he scarred this child for life no you know what you're telling that child oh you're scored for life and so it's called the self-fulfilling prophecy if they've told they've been scored for life or they've been damaged or their their soul's been murdered then eh, odds are they're gonna fly around a pole one day making uh, money one dollar at a time
1: that's a uh, interesting perspective because i think people just Try to do the right thing and say the right thing and don't have any idea what the repercussions are uh, when you're talking to some individual who's at the age that they're so impressionable. And if you you, the the term self-fulfilling prophecy is is spot on accurate with that. I mean, what else what else do they have to live up to if they're told that their soul's been murdered?
3: And I guess the overall message is the last line of my book. It's a quote from Helen Keller. And it says, the world is full of, su- world is full of suffering, but is all- also full of the overcoming of it. And I think that that's my overall message is that, you know, okay, bad shit happens, but you can't be okay with the proper therapy, counseling, or support. Um, unless you're murdered, then hmm, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like sexual abuse, that kind of thing. Right.
0: And uh, did you go to therapy?
3: I was forced to go to therapy for court appointed reasons. Like, okay, if daddy went to trial, They needed to have a psychological evaluation on me, but I only went for a short time, and the psychiatrist, psychologist, whichever one, it was a doctor, so psychiatrist, he told my mom, he's like, nah, he'll be fine.
1: And do you have a family now?
3: Just the ones I came in with. (laughs) I don't have any children (laughs) of my own, no. Okay. And I don't want them. (laughs) (laughs) I worry enough about this cat I got.
1: Understood. I feel like you have
2: a secret to Gumbo, too don't get Jody started on cooking.
3: Well, the secret to gumbo is don't get too fancy with it. Just let the ingredients speak for itself, make you a good roux. There's a debate over tomatoes and, or, I mean, okra. Uh, If you don't like tomatoes, don't like okra and you're satisfied eating some type of stew, that's fine. But my seafood gumbo has tomatoes and okra and I promise you it's better than anybody else's.
2: His next book's going to be a cookbook apparently. So everybody be on the lookout
3: no me and my friend we i mean came up with the idea like 15 years ago maybe 20 years ago to do like the Pan cookbook and i actually have several dishes but the, the point of the cookbook was and i've seen seen them like this now but it wasn't like that 15 years ago is i took a picture of every step i mean slice the onion i took a picture of the onion slice slice the carrots so i took a picture so at every step because when people go oh uh, you need to fold in the ingredients well unless you took a culinary class you probably don't know what fold in the ingredients is so I would show you in picture form what folding was. And it actually, I've shared my recipe with white, for white, white beans with several people, and they love it. So if y'all need a white bean recipe, I can send you the file.
1: Yeah, let's uh, exchange information because I'm very much uh, on board with getting good recipes from somebody who's from Louisiana. This is, this is like
0: gold here, culinary gold.
3: I can cook mustard greens better than anybody on the planet. Oh, Need that recipe.
0: Where can uh, people get your book?
3: Go to Amazon. Type in "Why Gary Why: The Jody Ploschay Story," and uh, it's available. I think the Kindle is like nine ninety nine, and the paperback is nineteen ninety nine. Um, if you want a signed copy, uh, that'll be twenty bucks plus five dollars shipping and handling in the United States. Um, just reach out to me: Twitter, Facebook, Messenger, uh, email address. I'm I'm as available to anybody because I mean. You know, all, everything's out there. I mean, I, not that many people are chasing after me, but I mean, if you're interested in a side copy of the book, I definitely will sign it and ship it out. I keep books on me all the time. That's how I was able to have one in my trunk when Shaquille O'Neal came walking in.
1: Of course. And aside from your cookbook, what else are you working on? Do you have any plans for a, a follow-up book? Or
3: I really enjoyed the first one a lot, and I would love to write another one, but I just don't know what I would write it about. Let's get the one going now, because... I mean, I mean, shortly after it was published, uh, COVID hit, I had you know, speaking engagements canceled. So all that has affected the bottom line. I'm
2: going to, I'm going to campaign now for, uh, Jody Plachey at crime con 2023. So everybody starts spreading it around.
3: Oh yeah. Oh, I wanted to go to CrimeCon this year. Cause it was the same time of the NFL draft and my really good friends or friends with Derek Stingley senior. And we knew Derek Stingley junior was going to be drafted pretty high. They were in Vegas for it, but, uh, <laughs> I'm like I'm like, I got the NFL draft and crime com and I can't go. But I did go see golf books at Tiger Stadium, so that was pretty cool.
1: <laughs> oh, cool, cool. Well, nice. if you do end up going to CrimeCon next year, we're gonna stick real close to you because I want to experience these stories. Like I want to experience because we will bump into where's where's that crime con next it's year? It's Orlando. In Orlando. Oh, it's in yeah. Orlando.
2: You'll be oh, yeah. bumping into me, good fellas. <laughs> there we go.
1: Well this has been uh, this has been a, a pleasure um, I, I am I don't want to say this in a way where it's going to come across as disingenuous but it is very humbling to speak with someone like you who's been through so much who's able to deal with that and uh, keep your composure while in the Twin Peaks restaurant is so impressive
2: I'd be I'd be crying into my wings right now if I was Jody I'd just like I don't know how he does it man but he does it and he does it well I appreciate that